Hey, listener. Yeah, you. I'm talking to you. Are you tired of searching all over the internet for just the right podcast? Well, Moose Media Inc.'s got you covered. If it's the horror and the macabre that sends chills up your spine, then Moose's Monster Mash is the show for you. Or, if you prefer hearing stories from pop culture icons of the past, present, and future, Bull Spit with Moose has your name written all over it. Just give me a follow over on Twitter at the handle Moose Media Inc. And if there's not an episode between those two shows that you like, that Twitter account is backed by a double your money back guarantee. And that, my friends, is no Bull Spit. This is Jim Crutt. Keep mashing on. You're listening to Moose's Monster Mash. <laughs> Welcome, Horror Hounds, to another legacy episode of Moose's Monster Mash. And when you think film and horror legacy, this family pretty much goes hand in hand. So here to talk about the century of Cheney, please welcome Mr. Ron Cheney. Well, thank you. Glad to be here with you. Oh, I'm glad to have you, because like I said, I mean, if you look at not just horror movies, but film in general. The, you know, the, the Cheney name is so interwoven for over a century now that it, it, it's crazy. Yeah, it's it's a pretty amazing legacy, you know, and uh, over the years I've been doing research and more in depth of uh, my family's career and, uh, and you know, uncovered his entire uh stage career as well so he was on stage with my great-grandmother for over 10 years and so much of what he learned came from that background that he you know took to uh forward into the movies and certainly into the horror characters that he played and it's just i think the entire family is very proud of that legacy and the uh, longevity they've been around and entertaining people in many different ways including horror well, and yeah, it's not just film, because as I was preparing for this, your family in general is so interwoven with, like, the Midwest history. I mean, your, I believe it would be your great-great-grandfather founded the uh, Colorado <clears throat> School for the Deaf and Blind? Yes, that would be my, well, let's see, <laughs> going back, let's see, uh, be my Great, be my triple great 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 grandparents formed the schools for the deaf in uh, Kansas and Colorado, and then their one of their sons was the one that uh, married Emma Kennedy, whose parents founded the schools, and they married, and uh, Lon was their child. So yeah, that's where it came, and so much of that deaf background. Uh, and that early pioneering spirit of America certainly was instilled in Lon at a young age. And, you know, he took, to, like I said, to stage and to film. And, you know, it was just something he loved and enjoyed. And uh, every opportunity was a new challenge for him to, to meet and see what he could do with it. But that certainly that deaf background gave him a, a tremendous uh, depth for characterization and uh, body language and pantomime. Well, and yeah, I was looking at that, and uh, I was thinking that his pantomime background and 
you know, having to use the facial expressions to communicate with his parents and any, you know, anyone else around that, you know, may also be deaf, that definitely gives him a leg up when it comes to emoting. And there, there definitely wasn't anybody better at emoting than Lon Sr. When he was on screen, and I would imagine it was the same on stage, if he was happy, you knew he was happy. You you went on that ride of emotions with him. Yes, undoubtedly. And uh, again, the interesting thing is, well, he's best known, certainly my family's probably best known for their horror films, no doubt about that. But Lon's early career, you know, was really, he was a comedian, <laughs> a comedian <laughs> and a dancer, you know, and stage manager and, you know, complete opposite of what he ended up doing. He, he kind of felt that he could always do comedy because he had done it on stage for so long. And then when he first started in film, made that transition, you know, his first attempts were at comedy, but uh, it just to him didn't translate like it did live as it did in film. And, you know, he was pretty, pretty uh, <laughs> upset at his performances when he saw some of the early work. They didn't think he was funny at all playing in these comedies, which were so popular at that time. And then uh, moving forward, when he had the opportunity to the dramatic side, you know, he adapted to it very well. And, uh, you know, we see what his body of work uh, did. But also going back a little further, because of the deaf background and his father, <clears throat> his father, Frank, who was a barber in Colorado Springs, you know, he was he was known as, you know, his name around town was Dummy. And, you know, people would make fun of them, you know, just because of the deafness and their uh, inability to speak, you know, pronounce everything correctly or uh, inaudible or understandable. You know, he took that and you see that in his characters, why there was so much pathos for those uh, unwanted people, and I think that really carried through throughout his whole career. Oh yeah, including his horror films. Well, and especially later on in his horror films, like when you get to like The Hunchback of Notre Dame, and he's playing Quasimodo, this guy who is he really isn't a monster, but that's how he's treated. Absolutely, he's ostracized by everybody, and. That that really fits in that whole background that you just described. So he gets to really dig deep into his own personal experience and let it out on screen. And you you felt it. Like every cry of anguish you felt. When he was chained up in the town square, you, you felt that pain. You felt that just utter like embarrassment and just why am I, you know, why am I here? Mm -hmm. You know, an innocent person that's being persecuted for something, you know, he thought in his mind when he was doing the right thing and saving Esmeralda in that particular film. But you see a lot of that expression from the deafness in that film. Uh, I don't know if you ever saw the episode you asked for it. My grandfather was on it and they interviewed him about his dad and he they rolled a couple of the clips from from the hunchback and uh, he said okay first he kind of started out doing like abc's in sign language and a few uh sign language expressions and then he said roll the tape and then you see you know some of these characters or uh, these uh emotions coming out from quasimodo 
and they were abbreviations of sign, you know, hate and anger and love. And it was very interesting to watch how he integrated that into his film to give that emotion. And it was more about the audience feeling the emotion, you know, not him as an actor per se, even though he endured, excuse me, a lot of pain in order to play those uh, roles. Yeah. He did suffer certainly for his art, no doubt about it. And wasn't because he wanted to, he just, you know, to create something that's never been done was left totally up to him. No ideas, no makeup unions, no things of that nature, no prosthetics, no things they can just easily put on you. He had to create them and then not only create them, but make them effective in how it registered on film and being able to actually perform under some of these grueling harnesses that he made for himself and teeth and eyes and things of that nature. But it was all really to bring the audience in, into the character and feel he goes, I'm, you know, I don't want to act the hunchback. I want to be the hunchback. You know, that was kind of his his feeling. Well, yeah, he was really ahead of his time as far as makeup effects go because at that point, movies didn't really have effects. I mean, you had the curly mustache for the villain or, you know, just the simple stuff. You know, you kind of relied on stage effects, which weren't, you know, grandiose effects because they had to be simple changes and things like that. And mm-hmm. then you have guys like, you know, Lon Sr. who were like, well, if I'm going to do this character, the, you know, a, a twirly mustache isn't going to work for Quasimodo. He's a hunchback. You know, he has to be this... They fear him for a reason, and it's not because he has a funny mustache. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Same thing with uh, Phantom of the Opera. You, you can't have that Dick Dastardly style villain in Phantom of the Opera. You, you have to have that like burn victim style to get that same feel, that same pull of emotion. Yes. You know, and they were played for sympathy. You know, I mean, you wanted to hate him or fear him. But... Then you felt sorry for him, you know. That's that's such a, a a wonderful sign of a great actor when you can turn the audience's emotions like that and leaving a lasting impression. You know that well. Oh, you are feeling it, and it's quite a unique trait, and not a lot of actors have that. Ray Bradbury summed it up really well. You know, he once said that Lon was someone who acted out our psyches. He, you know, somehow he got into the shadows inside our bodies. He was able to nail down some of our secret fears and put them on screen. The history of Lon Chaney is his history of unrequited loves. He brings that part of you out into the open because you fear that you are not loved, the fear that you will never be loved, and the fear that there's some part of you that's grotesque that the world will turn away from you. And I think that's why we latched onto those characters so well. Mr. Bradbury had it right. I mean, your great-grandfather really drove those characters home and like you mentioned you either you had sympathy for him or you hated him but either way there was strong emotion one way or the other it wasn't just like a blasé you know oh there's a character on the screen no you were invested in that character absolutely you know every time he appeared on screen you're just like okay you know where's he going here you know you know, once you've seen it, then you can kind of go back and critically watch what he was doing. I mean, really, the Hunchback will be 100 years old in two more years. So it's like, wow, what a lasting impression, you know, that that has left, you know, from there's not a lot of 
early film stars that you even remember in, in all my research, and I've got all kinds of research papers going back to the teens and all those silent film actors, you know, you remember Charlie Chaplin and Buster Keaton and and several of the really big ones, but there was a lot of stars there. They just kind of disappeared and uh, no, no one even remembers their name. And the funny thing with Lon, you know, they're pretty well out there still, you know, and especially the horror fans, I have to say are the greatest, you know, I've always kept that legacy alive and, uh, you know, and intrigued and passed it on to the next generations, which is where we are today. And that's what I try to do as well, you know, kind of make a mark and keep that legacy going because there's a lot to be learned from those movies and, you know, just the characterizations and what went into them. Well, and what what I've always liked about the older movies is they're always a good place to start as like a dip your toe in the water for horror. They're they're family friendly horror. So if mm-hmm. you have a kid who maybe likes to be scared, you're like, well, here, watch this. They might not necessarily like a black and white film right away, but they'll lock onto that emotional ride just like everybody else did and mm-hmm. it, it's it's a good entry to the genre and it's especially when you're watching lawn it's a master class in emoting and being able to express yourself yeah, no doubt about that i mean you can watch his range in other movies as well I don't know if you'd consider some of them um, horror films, but, you know, some of the things like he did in Penalty, you just watch him and just mesmerizes, you know, he's just so powerful on screen, you know, he attracts your, however you react to him, but there's always an emotion. Very very rarely do you kind of look at his work and, you know, question what you were just looking at or how it was portrayed. You know, that's that's a definitely a unique quality. Yeah, he definitely had the ability to draw you in. And he had you in the palm of his hand the entire time. And that's a quality you don't see much these days. Not very often. You know, there's a few actors out there that can, can reach those and really some fine work out there today, no doubt. But, uh, you know, he was just, a product of his time and his environment and his determination and perseverance, I'd have to say more than anything else, because you would have thought for sure through, through his career, you hear about the successes, but you know, all the failures that, and I wouldn't say failures, but that keep trying to, you know, work your way up that ladder and stay at it instead of giving up on it because you have that passion for it. You know, that, that, that's a testament to him, no doubt, and obviously influenced his son, my grandfather, you know, so much that he followed in his footsteps, for sure. Let's switch over to talking about your grandfather. Otherwise, I'm going to end up keeping you here all day because there's so much we could talk about. <laughs> well, they definitely both have pretty distinguished careers. and made yeah. a lot of films and television and stage and everything else. I mean, they've hit every area of the uh, spectrum in the entertainment business no doubt (laughs) it's a lot more than just one short episode um (laughs) (laughs) one of the things that i found interesting in my research was that your grandfather worked so hard to not be in 
his dad's shadow to the point, you know, he went to business school, he does all this. Your great grandfather tells him, you know, don't go to, don't go into the business, don't go into the business. And later he becomes Lon Jr. You know, so it was just very interesting to see that uh, dynamic shift. Yeah, and it wasn't until after his father died that he actually went into it. But I think it was always in him. He, I mean, he grew up with it. He was the proverbial baby born in a trunk, you know, that went on the trains with his parents to stage performances. And they weren't, you know, one and two six-week stands. They were one night, two nights all across the Midwest, all throughout the United States. I mean, it was pretty amazing. And I think Lon probably tried to dissuade his son uh, more so because of the hardships that come with that business more than anything else. But it was in my grandfather's heart because the second he had that opportunity to make that transition and someone noticed him, you know, he attempted to do it. So I think he he as well was born of his time and the influence. And uh, we're all so happy he did because he left a wonderful legacy for sure in his own right. Well, and much like his father, he had you know a lot of roles leading up to what eventually became his, uh, I guess, legacy role being the Wolfman. You know, you had, you had all those, you had the latter roles, and then he he gets Wolfman, which, as you and I have talked about before, is my personal favorite of like the Universal era monsters, and. Uh, then, like, the rest is history. I mean, his name is synonymous with horror from then on. You know, and depending on what generation you were born in, too, so often, and I've, I've found this a lot, you know, in the years I've been working with the business, a lot of people don't know there was two Lon Chaney's because, you know, my grandfather, or who well, I refer to as Gramps, so if you hear me say that, that's what we called them, but... Uh, he, you know, he entered that business, you know, on his own. He didn't. Getting back to your previous question, he didn't want to. Uh, he didn't want to ride on his father's coattails. He wanted to make his own way. And then, of course, you were going from transitioning from silent films to talking films, and you know, and again, the hardships were really, really tough in the business. Let's put it that way. So, my grandfather gave up a lot to pursue it. You know, but like you said. He's one of the icons of the business now, you know, he, similar to his father, gained, you know, that fame or notice because he gave sympathy to those characters and you felt it. And people don't realize, you know, we talk so much about Lon and sign language and his parents being deaf. Well, my grandfather's grandparents were deaf and he communicated with them and the and his grandpa lived, you know, until 1927. So, you know, he used to say, you know, they'd stay with them sometimes when they would go on stage on tour. But um, he used a lot of the sign and emotions as well. So he learned those lessons uh, like his father did and kind of transitioned them into film as well. Like you mentioned, the way he brought the uh, life to the character. I mean, it it was a very sympathetic Wolfman. I mean, looking back, I don't see anybody else playing him besides your grandfather. Well, you know, and I do believe uh, Boris Karloff was 
Tab to do the role in the beginning. If I remember right, I read that somewhere along the line. And See, I think Karloff was supposed I to have it. I think he didn't want to be typecast so much because he was already kind of typed as Frankenstein. So that kind of opened the door for my grandfather who had just signed and he did uh, man-made monsters. So, you know, again, <laughs> circumstances and the way the stars align sometimes set that path forward. But like you said, you know, he did. He added so much to the role. It's hard to see any other actor playing that character like he did. And like you, you know, people, a lot of times when Bela and Sarah and I, if we were out, you know, together, you know, the fans would come on. They'd love Boris Karloff or Bela Lugosi or Lon Jr., you know. But the Wolfman always seemed to be the one when people would come up to me and just, seemed to have a connection to the character and the way that he played it, you know. So that's always thrilling to hear and, uh, you know, impact you left in someone else's life. You just felt so bad. You wanted him to be better. You know, you just were hoping that something was going to work out, you know, for him. And that's just, uh, you know, compliments to all the people that worked on the film, not only my grandfather, but the director and, you know, Jack Pierce and, the other actors in the film, you know, that made it collectively. He even said that once, you know, all the stars kind of have to align, but every once in a while you just, you have one, you know, and certainly Wolfman was one of them. One of the coolest things about it was, you look at that era of movie making, and your grandfather's the only one of those actors you just named who got to play his character in every iteration that character was in. Yes, very true. Yeah, I mean, you think about it, I mean, if you really think about it, because you've seen the other Wolfman movies, of course, and could you see them changing actors in that one? I don't think it would. It just wouldn't seem to roll. Even when they've done some novels, you know, or about the Wolfman or something. I remember, what was the name of the one book? It was a paperback. You know, and the whole time reading it, you're reading about Larry Talbot, and you're just picturing my grandfather. You know, it could have been anybody, you know, in the book. You know, you can use your own imagination. But even when you're thinking about it, all you ever did was think, well, Lon Chaney Jr., this is who was for that role. There was no other, you know. So that's that's pretty cool that he was the same character as Frankenstein and the mummy changed. Uh, and that stayed true. And that's why he loved the Wolfman so much and called it, his baby because he was the only one to play him you know he essentially built the first like monster multiverse in the you know in essence with him playing that same character and doing his crossovers with you know the mummy and dracula and frankenstein's monster we kind of had that monster multiverse with him at the center of it so that's a really cool legacy in and of itself. Yeah, to add on to all those characters his father played, you know, it's it's you know, it's great for us. I mean, Hollywood was always fun. <laughs> I bet. <laughs> Still is, you know. Who do you want to be today? I had all the family over here one day, and I had all of these different masks, you know, that I've worked with other companies on or individually, and you know, it was really funny because we all put 
different heads on you. <laughs> the Cheneys playing these different characters, and uh, we had a lot of fun on that one. They didn't want to do it, and I'd say, come on, guys, have some fun. You know, and they all put that mask on. It was hysterical. We, we still laugh about it today. <laughs> I'll come hang out at your house for Halloween. It's okay. <laughs> yeah, I always like Halloween, no doubt about it. Now, we get to you, and now... Neither of your parents did any acting, did they? No, no. Uh, my father was a rancher, uh, kind of grew up in that lifestyle, and then kind of returned to it. And, uh, you know, they my parents split really early when I was young. So I was really never around it. My dad used to go on set a few times, you know, when he was younger. Gramps was far more active in the 40s. Uh, but I think, Again, you know, there was the, the hard times came because of the entertainment business. You know, it hurt my great grandparents' relationships. Certainly, the entertainment business did, and my grandfather's as well. So, I think sometimes, you know, if you're a victim of that, you know, you tend to steer away from that career. But for me, I was a removed a generation, and being my grandfather, you know, you see him in books and magazines, growing up, and on TV, you know, it was kind of different for sure but you know he my parents never did so I just always had an interest I knew I'd someday I would pursue it you know I didn't know when or how or why and uh just knew it was in me people asked me that and I said well, it's kind of innate you know my my I think my sister had it a little bit and I don't know about my brother or, or my cousins because I never saw them really want to pursue it. Maybe, you know, I, they're all extremely proud, proud of the legacy. But, you know, it's something you have to go after, I guess. And I, I kind of always enjoyed the business and the creative side. So, you know, when I had the opportunity, I, I started to pursue that. And that's really what I've been doing the last 25 years. You know, first I had to learn a lot more about their careers because personally and career wires are two different things. And, uh, you know, I enjoy it. And I've been developing different projects. And uh, one of the ones that has actually moving forward now uh, is a play we've been working on, a musical play about Lon Sr. and his early life on stage. And my grandfather more as a boy, per se, although we touch on some of his career later, but it's primarily about Lon Sr., and the theater uh, has agreed. So we've been doing a few rehearsals and readings in New York, and uh, a theater has opted to sponsor us because so we, we can't do a whole lot more until we actually get to see it on stage. So we're very excited. And in a year from now, we'll, we'll be debuting our play, you know, because of COVID, things got kind of shut down. But uh, yeah, we're on tap. So we're all really excited about that. It'll just be a short run. And we get to kind of work out any of the bugs. And I think uh, it'll be really good. And hopefully tell a whole nother story that probably people won't relate. Well, hopefully they'll relate to a lot. You know, it seems like all the readings we've done, people have really enjoyed it. We've had a lot of change in laughter, tears, joy, you know, and it's all put to a musical, which you know, I thought, well, I don't know about a music. I could see doing a stage play, but a musical I wasn't sure about until I really started studying their career and found out how much of the musical background and really it fits, you know, both on stage and then in film. You know, it was kind of like stage and they had musicians there. So 
you know, we're real excited. We'll, we'll have it up on the boards next year. Do you think you'll get to uh, release like a DVD of it for those who can't make it out to New York to see it? Uh, probably not. We're going to probably get, you know, get everything we can out of it and film some of it, but more as a, uh, you know, at this stage, unless we get a commercial producer that wants to back us, uh, you know, we'll, we'll just get what we need for uh promotional. And then hopefully, you know, if everybody loves it, then we'll get picked up again. And, you know, hopefully if people see the potential of it and the message that it's delivering, I think it, you know, we're, we're keeping our fingers crossed, obviously that it goes well. Uh, but the story is based on the book that my grandfather had started. And I've been working on all these years and doing this research. And, uh, you know, I think it's pretty good. It's, it's, uh, I think it's very moving and really touches on the deafness in the family. It's not going to be like a horror type of play, you know what I mean? You think, okay, Cheney's. And there's some elements you show, but it's more about the man and the life and my great-grandparents and grandfather and the life they they led and the adventures they went on and and some of the outcomes and how they touch people. That's awesome. Really wish it was easier to get to New York because that's something I'd really like to see. <laughs> <laughs> well, this is actually, I can't say where because we haven't signed the final contract, but everything's been moving quite well and everybody's real excited. So it'll uh, be in Michigan, though. Now, see, that's a little easier to get to for me. <laughs> well, you know, I, I guess a lot of plays, and I'm not as familiar with plays, and my goal's always been doing a film about Lawn. You know, that's always been my goal. One of the ones when I first started doing this so many years ago when I was visiting my grandmother, my, we went up there to help her move from uh, San Diego to another place because she was having some health issues. And then the moving process, you know, found a couple of boxes marked a century of Cheney's, you know, picture book on it that my grandfather was working on in the 60s. I kind of opened that box up and Wow, that was really the first inclination. Okay, whatever you've been waiting for to try to get into the business, like it kind of got resolved in that one moment. Like, you need to go do this. This is a, a story that should have been told. And unfortunately, Gramps was a little older and sicker and he couldn't quite complete it. So, you know, I've been on this journey here for a long time. And just to know the play is coming out of all this work, and sometimes I'm like, eh. I kind of go on and off of it and have another business as well. So, um, you know, it's just been a, a process. But I think time has told me that it's good because I learned so much more that that is so much more valuable to the play and hopefully potentially a movie down the road uh, to get the story out. You know, and I think people will be moved by it. I hope so. We're hoping <laughs> it'll touch people like, you know, they did so often in their careers with their with their films well and you're right it, it definitely is a story that needs to be told because as we've mentioned numerous times now it's a century of cheney there's a hundred years of story here other than mm-hmm. you know a hunchback in notre dame the phantom of the opera the wolfman there's there, there's tons of stories in there that there's 102 lost films of Lon Seniors. Yeah, I, I'm not sure how many lost films there are. I mean, I think most of them recorded. Uh, I've got a pretty good analysis of his film career. 
but I don't know if there's that many lost films of his. I don't think there's probably more, you know, that he was. Oh, are you talking about that exists? Okay, yeah, I'm sorry. That you're you're right. The ones that exist still are out of his 150 films or so. Uh, you're right. About probably over 100 of them don't exist anymore just because of the time they were made and yeah. that type of thing. Yeah, you're you're correct in that. You know, so to get you know to to share information about that time frame in a person's life would be phenomenal. And as a fan of said person, that would be fun to hear about. Well, I try to put that in the book. I mean, sometimes it's like, man, people really want to care about this anymore. All these films they'll never see. But, you know, if I have an image of them, I try to put it in there, at least a synopsis of what that film, because then you can see these characters. Cause he, and then a lot of uh, a lot of it is his own narration where he did, you know, take quotes out of where he actually was speaking about things and then did the research behind him and tied those to the films or times he were, was talking about. So it's still a picture book, but it's biographical and hopefully it's kind of fun and uh, keeping the theme my grandfather was starting, like, you know, look, you know, we've been asked a lot of questions over the years, and I'm trying to touch on some of the answers for you. You know, I wish he wrote a lot more, but, you know, he did write about his uh, him doing the Wolfman and, and playing Lenin of Mice and Men. He talked about his dad doing some of the makeup for the Phantom and Quasimodo and some other characters. So they're very short little quotes. Because he wanted it to be entertaining. He said, I want you to be able to open this book if you open it on page 100 or page 5. You're going to find something interesting and entertaining in there, see, and I've tried to keep that. So uh, definitely more like a coffee going. table and book. I like the creative side. I'm a very visual person, so uh, you know, I try to stay with it and put graphics of the era so you really know. Wasn't that long ago? Hundred years? You think about well, hundred years forever? No, it really wasn't that long in your in span of time. But how times have changed is pretty dramatic. So you know, I'll put like an old camera in there, or he's on stage. Well, you know, they're, they're in the building, but a lot right next to the livery stable. You know, ad. You know, so you know things that are a train ad because that's how they got around in those days. It's just I just find that part of history and. You know, there's so many other histories in there, trains and theater and, you know, and all these other things that were just a phenomenal time to be, you know, in America that was, you know, expanding. And that's when he was doing this, which is pretty incredible. You can't see this, but I'm like foaming at the mouth. I'm waiting for now the play <laughs> and the book. Well, I don't know when to stop. That's always my problem. You know, this the first book. It will be two. You know, one will be more course my grandfather's in it picture wise because he'll be younger but you know at the so it just kind of covers i cover some of the deafness in the family uh, uh, background in fact chapter one is called the foundation which covers his parents and the founding of the schools and what they kind of went through during that period of time in the 1800s you know to establish what came to be such an influence in this man's life and i felt if i didn't put that in i don't think you get the, the whole context of who the man was you know and its whole spectrum about how uh he learned from his parents and his grandparents and saw how people treat you know just just a boy he didn't even talk himself he had two deaf parents you know he didn't speak till he was like four years old so you know everything was by expression and you know hand signs so 
you know, he just brought it forward and these all of these parts of history, I think, kind of play a part. You can't put them all in there, so you have to be selective. And that's probably my hardest, hardest thing to do right now is cut out pages. I'm over 350 pages already. And I'm, oh, my God, I can't do it for one. It costs more to print. But, you know, you only have so much uh, space and time, you know. I can imagine. <laughs> I've got to kind of bring I, I finally put a deadline on myself because the play – you know, we'll debut next year. So it's based on the book, you know, because I've had all this information to feed and work with the writer. And, uh, you know, now I said, well, my partner, Sam, I said, well, I got to get the book out. I guess I put a deadline on my book release now. <laughs> I got to get it done before the play comes out. <laughs> so there's the play, there's the book. Is there anything else that you guys are doing to help kind of keep the legacy moving forward well, and alive? Well, I do the licensing. Or? You know, I do the licensing still. So we have different products and posters. A lot of different things are coming out, like kind of retro. We're making new posters out of old ones. I really enjoy doing that. I like kind of developing products. But I've also, you know, in between, so I'm not always working on the book and why it takes so long. I work on other projects as well. I've developed a couple film scripts of my own, Um uh, shot a little short years ago but wrote a script it was going to be the sequel to the wolfman and then i did you, you talk about you know how you could write all these other stories on these characters and things and you know that they played and that's kind of what i did i developed another one it was called phantom rider which is a horror western horror i still love that one but um hopefully someday if I can get one of my projects, you know, to fruition, then I'll draw interest to do a few more of them because I've I've got some really cool projects. And then I also, when my grandfather wasn't well when he was older, he developed several scripts of his own that I still have. I mean, they're really they're, they're kind of cool, you know. They're uh, one's one was called Curse of the Gila, and then and it was uh, kind of in the Southwest in the early 1920s. Uh, he did another one. It's called Come On Johnny, which was a boxing kind of supernatural, kind of a really interesting story. He did develop a television show called Tales of an Antique, where he was going to host it, you know, and describe a particular antique. And then he would go back into the backstory. I mean, it was kind of cool. I think that's relevant because people love antiques today. Uh, so a lot of projects on the burners, but, you know, it takes money and time to do all those things. It's certainly a good team of people you need to work with, for sure. Oh, most definitely. So where can listeners find more about the uh, Cheney legacy or, like, keep up to date with current uh, projects and stuff like that? Well, we have our website, which has kind of been a little bit of a uh, uh, disarray late, but I think we're back up and running. We're trying to upgrade it. I'm just in the middle of another project right now, so I'm a little slow on it. But our, our stores in there, it's lonchaney.com, so pretty easy to remember. And uh, yeah, you know, interviews like what you're doing, because I really don't get out there too very often. I, people tell me you got to be more active on Facebook and this and that, but. Uh, Usually I just post on certain anniversary days, like I'll probably post pictures on that nobody's have seen before on my Facebook page. Uh, uh, but, yeah, <laughs> I'm not real good at self-promotion. That's probably why I don't get as far as I, <laughs> I hopefully should or could. 
So, yeah, my Facebook, and then there's a lot of monster sites that pick up what I say, and then they put it out there as well. And then there's a lot of, you know, a long, you know, there's been six books written about him. So, you know, there's a lot of information on the Internet. But, uh, yeah, hopefully this book will kind of cover all the areas and, uh, you know, come to the source where it, it you know, should be. <laughs> That's from the family. No, I'm looking forward to it. Listeners, you can find the link to the website and everything in the episode description. You can find me and other great podcasters over at electronicmediacollective.com or on Twitter at Moose Media Inc. Ron, I know you got to get going. So it's been a blast having you on today. And I got to have you on again sometime so we can dig deeper into this because th- this was phenomenal. I mean, just mind blowing stuff. <laughs> Well, I think it's probably like you don't you haven't heard those type of things about the fan. I mean, you have in general, but not more. I don't know what I feel were influential in their careers, and you know, as just observing it, not just as a fan per se, but you know, my family as well, and trying to integrate those two points of view. You know, what means something to me might not mean something to a fan, but trying to keep it entertaining that way and you know uh, I think we've just been a creative family and I just hope to play that one forward and come out with some new projects that people will enjoy as well and you know they're all based in my family's background and uh, I just kind of I think when I started doing this contractor by trade but uh, you know I really love the creative side and it's brought a lot out of me and you know, I, how you get it all out there, I don't know. You know, that was always been my my issue. But uh, hopefully, with the play, it'll open up a lot of doors for me. And uh, these other projects are kind of on the back burner, but they're ready to go. And I've really met a lot of wonderful people over the years that I look to assist me moving forward. Well, I definitely think you're on the right track. Well, great. Well, thank you. And until next time, horror hounds, mash on. All right. We look forward to it. Y'all take care. This has been Moose's Monster Bash. Come back for more chills and thrills if you dare. <laughs>